Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Bossed Up podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today we're tackling a fun topic that I'm excited to dive into with a VIP guest all about being bored at work. Now, I know what you're thinking. For all you hustlers and burnt out bosses and women who are juggling multiple roles in and outside of the office, you might be laughing thinking about being bored of all things at work. And I hear you. But the reality is that in this wacky, wild workforce we have, while some of us have plates that are piled high as can be, a lot of our talent is being wasted. There's just a reality in how corporations and organizations work that there are certain pockets of our workforce that are underutilized. And today we're talking about how to deal with being in that subset and being not stimulated at work, being not used to your full potential, and languishing in such a position. The reality is being burnt out and overburdened, while that's no fun, being disengaged at work is just as big a problem, if not more so. And it makes me think back to some old school career advice I once got from my grandfather of all people. My grandfather was a self-made man who worked his way up the ladder at one large multinational corporation for the entirety of his career. He worked for a bank and he went from being raised in a really modest upbringing in Illinois to serving in the army in the Panama Canal Zone, where he met my grandmother, a typist, a Panamanian typist who got a sweet job as a secretary in the Canal Zone when it was occupied by and run by the Americans at the time. And then they went on to Mexico City, where my grandfather went to business school and ended up landing a sweet job a few years later. He worked his way up the ladder there, eventually spending a good chunk of time in Bogota, Colombia, where my mother was born and raised for the first 13 years of her life, and then moved to the New York City area. And that's how I became a white girl from Connecticut. <laughs> but what my grandfather taught me about working hard and proving yourself and climbing up that ladder, although my career certainly looks rather different, was that you never want the boss to see you as anything less than hardworking. And for him, that meant telling me when I landed my first job out of college some very sage advice. He said, Emily, never let the boss catch you reading the newspaper as he or she walks by your office door. And I had to chuckle at that because you know, reading a paper newspaper would be a marvelous sight to see in any office nowadays, other than newspaper journalist offices. 
because it's not quite the equivalent that many of us are doing, although I'm a proud subscriber to the New York Times and I have my Sunday New York Times delivered to me each weekend. But the same principle applies. How do you manage perception, which we know is a very powerful thing, in the everyday workplace? Whether it's surfing Facebook or reading the newspaper, we don't want our bosses to see us wasting their time on the company dime. That's what we're going to talk about today with this marvelous listener-submitted career conundrum. Take a listen. Hi, Emily. My name is Erin. I'm calling from the Twin Cities area. I am currently office temping, and I'm working as a shipping clerk in a warehouse. Because I'm a temp, a lot of times I don't have a lot of things to do because the amount of work I have to do is, like, it's just not very much work. And so a lot of times I'm sitting at work and surfing the internet or reading a book or looking at my personal email or whatever, but I only do that when I don't have any other work to do. I should mention this too, you know, it's for women in a male-dominated environment. There were a couple folks from corporate that came, and they're trying to give us advice on how to better run their warehouse. So all these people from corporate, they're all men, male-identifying people. They all said that I'm on the Internet too much and that I'm too chatty. I'm like all four of us women are too chatty and too social and we're on our phones too much when we should be working. But, you know, a lot of it is, well, I don't have anything to do, and I have all my work done. And while I'm waiting for a task to be assigned to me, like, why shouldn't I go look at Instagram or why shouldn't I go look at the news or something like that? Erin, thank you so much for calling in with this so relatable career conundrum. Honestly, there were a few jobs early on in my career, and there's no one else I'd rather break this down with than the advice columnist and workplace consultant Allison Green, the writer behind the uber-popular Ask a Manager blog, and as of today, the author behind the Ask a Manager book. Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, Allison. Thanks for having me. So Allison, what's your take on Erin's situation and the conundrum she's dealing with here? I think some of this is less about the substance of whether you're using your time well and more about how you're perceived. So if other people are working and they're frequently seeing you on the internet or chatting, it can start to look like you're not working hard or not prioritizing the right things. And I totally get that Erin is doing this when she doesn't have anything else to do. But people observing don't necessarily know that. And that perception can matter. You could argue that it shouldn't matter, but it can matter. So I think the first thing I would do for Erin is talk to her boss and, you know, tell her you have a lot of downtime. Ask if there are more things you can work on during that downtime. If they're not, ask if she's okay with you browsing the internet or socializing with coworkers or so forth. But if you can, I would try to pick things to fill that downtime with that won't have as much of a perception problem for people who don't know the full context. So It might be that you're better off doing some professional reading or some online tutorials or something that is at least nominally work-related. A lot of socializing, even if you really do have the time for it, can just be kind of a bad look. And it can actually be distracting to other people who do have higher workloads, so that's something to take into account too. 
That is such a great point. And you know what? This has me thinking that this is a really challenging experience for someone who's early on in their career in particular. If you think about it, in the world of higher education or really any education, if you're writing papers or studying for quizzes, when a meritocracy of grades are in place, you are incentivized to do what you got to do, but to do it efficiently. Efficiency is rewarded in life before graduation. If you get your work done on your own in an efficient manner, you've got more free time. But life changes, especially in the nine to five working world. When you're clocking in and clocking out, the incentives around efficiency change radically. And it's just a lesson in how powerful other people's perceptions of you can be. You're no longer being judged on the grade you got on that paper or how well you delivered your work product and how efficiently you delivered it. You're being judged on a whole bunch of other highly subjective perceptions. So you, Aaron, have to really think about which stakeholders' opinions are the most important and how you can manage their perception. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the question about whether it could be about age or gender, it's always good to ask those things. I think it's possible, but maybe not likely. I mean, there there could be something stereotypical at play about young women always being on their phones or valuing socializing too much when they should be working. But I see this kind of complaint come up across age and gender lines quite a bit. So I'm not sure it's what's going on in this situation. It's possible, but it's really the kind of feedback that you could get regardless. Yeah, and I can imagine how frustrating it must feel to have these folks from corporate who don't really know Aaron sort of make these cursory judgment calls without that much information about her work product. So I suppose it's fair for Aaron to be a little suspicious about how they're drawing such conclusions about her work product or about her performance with not a whole lot of information. After all, we're all flawed, biased human beings. And when we are making rapid fire judgment calls, we're more likely to rely on superficial indicators, things like age, sex, race, to fill in the gaps in our knowledge about someone's motivations and actual performance. So I think there's something to be said there about her rightful suspicion. Yeah. Absolutely. I think a good way to take it is, hey, here is some useful information about how I might be being perceived. And it's great to know about it. It would be worse to be giving off that impression and have no clue that those were the conclusions people were drawing. So here's some insight into how it can come across. Let me think about how I want to manage that. And managing perception is a big part of being a professional. It's not just about doing the work. It's about making sure that work is seen and valued, especially by people who have real power over your career trajectory. So, Allison, how would you advise Aaron in terms of managing the perceptions of different stakeholders? Because it sounds like she's got a few different people to keep in mind here. It sounds like her relationship with her boss might be in better shape than her relationship with the head honchos from corporate who are making this into a real problem for her. Yeah, I think that's where it's really helpful to sit down with your direct manager and talk about it and say, you know, hey, we got this feedback. Here's where I'm coming from. The context for me is I do have a lot of downtime. I think you know I have a great work ethic. I don't let things slip through the cracks. Sometimes we have periods where there's not much to do. 
I want to make sure that I'm navigating that in a way that um, that isn't phony. You know, I don't think anyone wants me sitting there literally twiddling my thumbs for <laughs> for hours. Let's see if I can do something that's useful to myself or to you at that time. But I also want to make sure that I'm being cognizant of of perceptions here. If your manager is a decent manager, that should be a helpful conversation. You might hear, oh, you know what, it's fine. These guys from corporate are here once a year. They come in, they give feedback, they leave. It's kind of like a drive-by feedback session. It doesn't really matter. You can go on doing exactly what you're doing and it's fine. You could hear that. Or you could hear, you know, it, it is a good point. I want to make sure that corporate really values the work that we're doing on this team. And some of that is just optics. So let's talk about how to handle it. So, I mean, it could go in a few different directions, but I would start by talking with your boss. Oh, Allison, how I wish I had your advice not too long ago, actually almost a decade ago now, when I was an intern at the very start of my career path and really could have used those words of wisdom from you. Back in the day, I had just graduated from college. I was serving as an intern at a digital consulting firm that I was so excited to be in in Washington, D.C., But because I was one of a handful of interns, and frankly, they just didn't have that much work for all of us, I found myself feeling pretty bored, twiddling my thumbs more often than not. So I can completely relate to Aaron's situation here. And I learned just how important it was to manage perceptions during my summer there. Like the overachieving goody two-shoes that I was, I prided myself on getting a lot of work done. I was always ahead of my manager's to-do list. So I found myself with a lot of spare time. So I dove headfirst into this dialogue on Twitter. After all, I was trying to figure out how to use vehicles like Twitter for online conversation and activism. And I came up with a little hashtag that was really trending in terms of being part of that day's news cycle. So I was pretty excited and a little bit proud of myself when this hashtag started to take off. When I get an email from my boss's boss. Now, mind you, her door was open. This was a fishbowl style office. And I could literally see her from across the office. But she had chosen to send me an email, which I thought was a little passive aggressive. But, you know, who am I to say? I was the lowly intern who was tweeting for half of the workday. And when I opened her email, it said, Emily, based on the frequency with which you are tweeting, because as it turns out, she was monitoring all the office members' tweets and all the interns' public Twitter profiles. She said, it's clear to me that you're not doing any real work. So basically, knock it off. She sort of chastised me. And I've always been a bit of a precocious young professional and still am quite a precocious professional. But I took it upon myself in that moment to write back to her again, quite passive aggressively, because I could also see her and could have gotten up and had this conversation with her in person. See, seeing my direct manager in the process who reported to her and said, actually, you're not my boss, because if you were... You would know that I have nothing to do because I've gotten all of my work done. (laughs) Now, what I hadn't realized because I was so busy taking this personally and coming to my own defense was that I was, in fact, calling out my manager to his manager by saying that he wasn't managing me properly. So not only was I pretty unprofessionally 
sniping back at the boss's boss, but I was also kind of calling out my boss in a not so appreciated manner. Needless to say, my job offer was shortly thereafter revoked, (laughs) which my manager and I kind of agreed upon was probably the right thing to do. And I'd already kind of checked out at that workplace at this point. But the irony is the interns next to me, the intern who was surfing Facebook all day, the intern who was openly napping on her desk in our fishbowl style offices, they were not penalized. They were not seen as a problem. I was seen as a problem because I took this so personally. I came to my own defense and I had an understandable amount of resentment that I can recognize in Erin's voice as she calls in with this question. I thought, Listen, I've got the right to do what I want to do because I've got all my stuff done and I'm doing a damn good job. But, Aaron, for goodness sakes, take Allison's advice. Do not be the precocious young professional that I was because if you don't clap back like I did and just play the damn office politics, understand the power of perception as a part of navigating your career path, you will in turn have more choices more choices, at least than intern Emily certainly did. Yeah, well said. But nobody teaches you that, right? No, you're expected to come in already knowing it. And very few people do. And typically people learn it, if they learn it at all, because some people go decades and don't learn it. But the people who learn it tend to learn it by messing it up and then drawing lessons from those mistakes. Now, Allison, I've got a related question that actually just came up this week in our Facebook group, the Bossed Up Courage community, where people are constantly asking career conundrums and supporting one another in navigating career transition. And in there, we had a similar question about boredom at work emerge in which one of our members writes, I have asked for additional responsibilities multiple times. I've been seeking out my own opportunities to do creative things, but I spend three hours every workday watching YouTube videos because I have nothing else to do. I see things that I could do to help take the burdens off of my coworkers, but would it be stepping on their toes to ask the GM, the general manager, to give me those responsibilities? And this boss goes on to say how she's talked to her new boss about it, but she doesn't seem to get it. I think there's two different pieces to this. Well, actually, maybe there's three. So one is some jobs have a natural ebb and flow, and you are going to have very busy periods and then very slow periods. And if that is the kind of job that it is, I would say use that time as, as well as you can to sort of prop yourself up for those busier periods. But if it's not that, if it's just the workload in this position is, is just pretty low and that's how it's going to be for a while, talking to your boss is absolutely the right thing. But if that's not getting you anywhere, you can try suggesting things that might be good uses of your time. I mean, take a look around. What do you see that needs to be done that could be a benefit to your team or to the organization? And you can propose those things. Sometimes the answer will still be no. And sometimes that can be very frustrating. You know, you're offering to go above and beyond and do this thing. Why are you being told no? And sometimes it's because telling you yes would mean it would take up more of your boss's time to coach and review and give feedback and, and so forth. So the answer might be no. So if that's where you are, it's kind of what I was saying to Aaron earlier, you know, is there something nominally work-related that you can do? Is there some kind of skill-building tutorial you can do? Is there something you can study up on that's somehow related to your field? Some kind of professional development that you self-design. 
But the other thing is, is that if this is a long-term condition of the job, it might not be a great position to be in for very long, not only because of the day-to-day quality of life problems that come with being bored, but because you want to ask, what are the accomplishments that I'm going to come out of this job with? When I'm looking for my next job, what am I going to be able to say that I achieved here? And if the answer is, well, I watched a lot of YouTube because <laughs> they weren't giving me very much work, it's not going to position you well for whatever your next step is. And so you don't want to stay in that situation long term. Yeah, that is such a good point. And it reminds me that this might actually be an opportunity to really practice being entrepreneurial, or in this case, intrapreneurial. This could be an opportunity to really develop the skills of identifying what gaps exist in your current workplace, identifying where inefficiencies are holding people back or how things could be better. And then it's also an opportunity to pitch those ideas and figure out how to get stakeholders on board. Those are skills that will help you in your next position or in other parts of your life. Identifying gaps in the workflow and identifying opportunities for improvement, pitching and getting stakeholder support, those are all transferable skills. But it requires being proactive, and that definitely takes concerted energy and effort. And if those efforts are not being appreciated, this might be an opportunity to become more externally valuable. Maybe you can be entrepreneurial in a volunteer capacity and get some volunteer work done during the workday, or even consider starting a side hustle that you can do while you're at work. Obviously, being incredibly mindful of the challenge of managing perceptions and not seeming distracted at work as well. But that innate desire to be purposeful in your work and have some sense of progress and forward momentum, it is so essential to long-term satisfaction that if you're not getting it in your day job, you've got to figure out how to get it elsewhere. Yeah, very much so. You can really really help yourself in your own career by looking around and finding what are the things I could be doing that would be adding some additional value here that I would be excited to do. I feel like so much of my own career progression came from just seeing things and thinking, ooh, so, and someone needs to do this. No one's doing it now, and I really want to do it. And if you're at the right workplaces, you'll get rewarded for that. Can you tell me more about that? Because being the founder behind Ask a Manager, a incredibly far-reaching website, which has, am I correct in seeing that it has close to 3 million hits every month now? It's 2 point something million a month. Yeah, not too shabby. So how did you become this voice of authority? How did you position yourself in such a way that you've been able to really help managers everywhere be a little better? When I started Ask a Manager, at the time I was working as the chief of staff for a nonprofit lobbying organization, and I was seeing people, staff members and job applicants who I was dealing with, I was seeing people make decisions for themselves that weren't getting them the outcomes that they wanted. And I kept thinking this would be going so much better for people if they had a better understanding of how managers and interviewers think. And while there were a lot of like career advice blogs out there, I didn't see anyone who was giving advice from the perspective of a manager. So like a source that would explain to people, okay, here's what your manager or your interviewer is thinking when you say X or 
when your manager says why to you, this is what she means. And I thought it could be really helpful to people. I honestly thought I would just do it for a couple of months and get it out of my system and no one would read it and that would be that. But I think there's a real hunger out there for help figuring out how to navigate workplace issues and and in particular for a place to get very nuanced advice. I mean, there's tons of places to go to learn how to write a cover letter or how to negotiate salary. I feel like my bread and butter at Ask a Manager is the much more nuanced stuff that's like, what do I say if I'm allergic to my boss's perfume? Or or how do I come back after being drunk at the holiday party? That kind of thing. So it sounds like it's fair to say that people have a lot to ask a manager, right? <laughs> it comes up a lot. And I think what has kept me interested in doing the site for so long, it's been almost 11 years at this point, which is crazy to think about. I think what's kept me interested and hopefully what's kept other people interested is that this work stuff, I mean, it's all about interpersonal things. You know, it's not it's not dry the way sometimes, I think sometimes people think, oh, a work advice blog, like that's got to be pretty boring. But it's, all, I mean, there's so much weirdness in the world and in people's interactions with each other that figuring out how to navigate that is what's fascinating. Absolutely. And this is such a helpful reminder that this might actually be an opportunity for folks like Aaron to flex those empathy muscles, to be more empathic and focus on the interpersonal relationships here. Because if we really think about it, you know, how might Aaron's manager be experiencing this? Does it feel to her manager like this is a personal failing of their managerial skills of not being able to give Aaron enough work? Might they be stressed out about this or worried about this or just feeling it's a real pain in the butt to keep Aaron occupied? What does looking at it from that perspective tell us? Yeah, it depends on what type of manager she is. I mean, if she's sort of a non-manager, meaning very passive, doesn't really, like maybe sees management as a pain in the ass that she has to do on top of the rest of her job duties. Yeah, she may be thinking the work of coming up with additional work for Erin is not something that she has room for right now or that it sounds very onerous. So she might want Erin to just quietly resolve this in a way that, that doesn't require her, the manager, to do more work. But if she's a good manager, or I mean, frankly, good managers are somewhat rare, but if she's a halfway good manager, if she's trying to do the management job well, she should welcome a conversation with with Erin about what's going on. I mean, even if it's just, it could turn out that it's just an opportunity for her to say, yeah, I mean, this sucks. I wish I had more to give you. The reality is that I don't. So let's talk about how to handle it, given that that's the reality. That's a useful conversation to have. I mean, it's not necessarily the answer that you want to hear. It's not necessarily the answer you want to be giving in the manager's shoes. But if that is the case, it's so helpful to just bring that to the surface and talk about where do you go from there. Yeah. And really bringing that perspective into Erin's conversation with her boss is going to be so helpful for her to go in knowing that might be where her manager's coming from and just thinking about how she can frame her ask with empathy and make this into a collaborative conversation. Well, as we start to wrap up here, you can hear so much more great advice from Allison on her blog, askamanager.org. And as of today, hitting shelves everywhere, you can find some of her best workplace advice columns released in her new book, Ask a Manager, How to Navigate Clueless Colleagues, Lunch-Stealing Bosses, and the Rest of Your Life at Work. Allison, can you tell us a little bit about the new book? 
Yeah, I'm really excited about it. As you say, it comes out today. And the thing that I have seen more than anything else over and over in the time that I've been writing Ask a Manager is that when people need to have a difficult conversation at work, they hesitate to do it or they don't do it at all because they don't know what to say. Or the only version of the conversation that they can imagine feels really awkward or really unpleasant and they don't want to cause tension in their relationships at work or they don't want to cause drama. And what I've seen happen on my website is that if I'm able to give them language to use, specific words, you say it like this, it ends up being a relief to them because now they can imagine a version of the conversation that doesn't feel aggressive or adversarial and they can imagine themselves actually speaking up and addressing whatever it is that needs to be talked about. So the idea with the book was to take on 200 tricky conversations that you might need to have at work during your career and give you the wording to do it. It focuses especially on the kind of cringy, awkward conversations that people dread the most. But to say if you made a a pretty serious mistake or if you lost your cool and you snapped at a coworker or you can't afford the expensive lunches that your team always wants to take together, the, the sorts of conversations that you might agonize over and maybe not have at all because you're not sure what to say. Wow, that sounds like a really helpful rundown. And I'm already getting like palms are sweaty over here thinking about those cringy conversations, but knowing that they're so essential to getting what you want out of work and really out of life. And over the years of working with women specifically through Bossed Up, I've noticed that it feels like this is an especially challenging thing for us to navigate, considering that we've been socialized our entire lives to be helpful and kind and supportive and not confrontational. And I wonder, of all the questions that you've answered through Ask a Manager over the years, have you found that for women in particular, it really feels like there's an extra burden of having to navigate these double binds that are involved in making your voice heard as a woman? Yeah, absolutely. Women are, many women are saddled with this this thing that society teaches us that we can't be rude and we should always be nice. And it's our job to do the labor of making sure that everyone is comfortable and things are pleasant. And women tend to, because of those expectations, women tend, I think, to have more anxiety around this stuff and to be less sure about what to say. The great thing that I have found about the questions that women bring to me is that women seem much more open to asking for advice than men. Um, You know, it's interesting. I think my readership breakdown is pretty roughly 50-50 men and women, but the letters that I get asking for advice are like 85-90% from women. Um, so, and maybe it's that there's like that old stereotype about men not going to the doctor when they need to. And maybe it's the same thing with advice that women are more willing to ask for it. I'm not sure, but, but yeah, a huge portion of the questions I get are from women. Well, it sounds like our audience here at Vostop are going to have a lot of questions for you, Allison, and they can find lots of answers too at askamanager.org and in your awesome new book, Ask a Manager, out today. Thank you so much for joining me today, Allison. Thanks for having me. It was great. And now it's time for this week's Boss Moves Moment of the Week. 
Emily. Um, my name is Caitlin. I'm from Ontario, Canada, and I just wanted to say that your recent episode on finding a male mentor and discussing mentorship with men and women actually really inspired me to reach out to younger women. And I think that I'm going to start reaching out to younger women in first and second year of university and talking to them and kind of helping them on their way. And that's my boss move for the week, wanting to reach out to younger women and helping them kind of get to where I am right now. Caitlin, thank you so much for calling in. I am so thrilled to hear that episode three, How to Get a Male Mentor, inspired you in this way. If you've got a Boss Moves moment to share or a question you want us to tackle on the podcast next, don't hesitate to leave me a voicemail right now on the podcast hotline at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. As I close out today's conversation, I hope you'll continue to support awesome women authors like the marvelous Alison Green, whose book is out today, and... Drum roll, please. I'm excited to announce that I'm writing a book too. That's right. The Bossed Up book is officially on its way to you. I'm thrilled to announce today that I've teamed up with the incredible folks at the Hachette Book Group and that Bossed Up, the book, will be hitting shelves in September of 2019 through their public affairs book division. Public Affairs Books has recently released some of my favorite reads relating to women and work and life satisfaction, notably The H-Spot, one of my favorite books by author Jill Filipovich. So I'm so excited and honored to say that Bossed Up, the book, will be produced by the same great publishing house. I'm working on the book right now, and I promise to take you along the Bossed Up book journey with me. So follow along on Instagram at Emily Aries if you're not there already. And in honor of today's big announcement, I'm sharing an exciting new giveaway for book-loving boss women like you. If you've ever wondered what my top all-time favorite books are for women who are navigating career transition and crafting a happy, healthy, and sustainable career path, head to bossedup.org book right now and you'll get a free download with all of my top book recommendations and you'll automatically be entered to win a giveaway featuring some of my favorite female authors' great books that I'm excited to support, to shine a spotlight on, and really to join this cadre of kick-ass women authors who are helping women boss up in their own careers and lives. Thanks so much for your support of the Bossed Up podcast, and I'm hoping your support of the new book. I cannot wait to share this journey with you. For more on today's show notes, including related articles, links to where you can find Allison's great new book, and where you can get in on this free giveaway in honor of the Bossed Up book announcement, head to bossedup.org slash episode 14 right now. In the meantime, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose, and together we'll continue to lift as we climb.
let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.